Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. Our guest today is Jano Lieber, the chair and CEO of the MTA, better known as the New York City Subway. It is the world's most extensive in terms of stations. There are 424 of them and the fifth longest in terms of track. We're not even talking about all the buses, bridges, and tunnels that are part of this iconic system, which will be 120 years old in 2024. We thought that there would be nobody better to talk about the whole subject of infrastructure, urban revitalization, and mass transportation than our guest today. Jano Lieber, welcome to Times Like These. Good to be with you, Chuck. So I'm curious, Jano, this is one of the biggest jobs in the world. You have to deal with everything from Congress to preventing crime to fixing little mosaic tiles. Some people would say the hassle factor is way too big, but obviously you embrace this task and this mission. As they say in Hollywood, what's your motivation? What, what made you even want to do this immense job? Chuck, you and I got out of college around the same time and both worked a little bit in journalism in Washington. I found out pretty quickly what interested me most was not commenting on things, but getting specific stuff done and especially issues that concern New York City, which has always been my passion. I grew up here and it's been you know my work and my home and my career in many ways. And um, so, yeah, there are lots of uh, slings and arrows, as they say, in the job. But ultimately, because, you know, mass transit is, as I always say, for New Yorkers, it's like air and water. We need it to survive. It's an area where you really can make a difference to the city and um, hopefully to its trajectory at this really incredibly challenging time. So it's, you know, I always consider myself fortunate, even when we're getting the crap beat out of us. <laughs> well, before we get to contemporary stuff, you are a lifelong New Yorker. What are your earliest personal memories of the subway system and traveling around by mass transit in the city? As you know, Chuck, the MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Agency, includes the subway system, but also all the buses, the two major commuter railroad operations, Metro North and Long Island Railroad, as well as all of those bridges and tunnels which have tolls on them in the city of New York, most of which were built by Robert Moses. All of those things are under the MTA. Um, so my, my personal mass transit experience started with going to school with my brother when we were little kids. I, I think I was six or seven and he was a year younger. We used to you know, get on the bus and transfer across town. And so it was, it was this experience of being uh, you know, among New Yorkers in these crowded situations, but also a lot of independent. That is what growing up as a kid in New York was. Mass transit made you independent. And that allowed me to explore and mostly do interesting stuff and sometimes get into trouble. But I was on my own as a latchkey kid in the 1970s. So in New York, taking the A train was a rite of passage, like getting your driver's license in the suburbs where, where I grew up. Yeah, no, we had, we had bus passes and subway passes. So we literally rode for free when we were kids. And, and I took full advantage. We tooled around a lot. So now let's take it up to the present day. You frame this nicely by referring to the 70s, which I think everyone would agree was a pretty difficult time for the city. 
it's a difficult time. Maybe it's always a difficult time for New York, but it's a difficult time in a different way now with the pandemic. That's when you came on board in this job. I think it was 2021, right? As ridership was plunging, the whole role of the system was in question. So talk to me about what it was like to come into the middle of that. You're right. It was kind of a high drama moment. We were just beginning to come out of the pandemic, summer of 21. And we were also in the process of turning over governors. Everybody knows that, you know, Andrew Cuomo resigned. Kathy Hochul succeeded him. And I, I just came into the job at that moment. Uh, and it was sort of a low point because we obviously we were having political change. We had this tremendous fall off in ridership on the mass transit system. We were still very much in the middle of COVID, with uncertainty about whether people were going to be comfortable coming back into mass transit. And as a result of the drop in ridership, we had a potentially catastrophic budget problem. This is everybody's talking now about our congestion pricing plan, which you hear about, but that has always been since the New York State Legislature passed it four years ago. It was always meant to fund the capital budget, the physical rebuilding and expansion of our mass transit system. The fair revenue support the operating budget. We were down several billion dollars. So we had a morale problem, a ridership problem, a public health issue, political change, and most of all, a budget crisis, which... So I repeat, Jenna, why did you want the job? I hope you're going to be able to tell me, and, and I think it's true, that you've been able to turn things around since then. Ridership has bounced back pretty strong. Um, we're, you know, it, it, it's still a ways from pre-COVID, but we're at apples to apples. It's close to 80% on the subways, about the same on the commuter railroads, a little less on buses. That's all taking into account the fact that we have, you know, a few more riders who don't pay what we call fare evasion, but it's it's not a million miles short of where we were pre-COVID. And most important, this year, a few months ago, with the governor's leadership, the state legislature did come to the MTA uh, budget with a rescue plan that allowed us to stabilize. And we're financially in pretty solid shape now, thanks to the budget that the governor got enacted this year. We have other issues. We can talk about all of them. But our operating budget, unlike most mass transit operations in the country, is uh, showing literally uh, we have zero deficit, at least on paper, for the next five years. That was a huge accomplishment. So you said, and I think it's true, that the transit system for New York is like the air and the water. Uh, you kind of can't live without it. Tell me a little bit more about how you think about what it does for the social cohesion of the city. I have seen you quoted, and I think it was a nice quote. You said that it is one of New York's most sacred public spaces. I have to admit it's a gritty public space while being sacred because it's where we all come together and live out the world's greatest experiment in tolerance and diversity. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, the, the quote you just uh, repeated is about it, as good and poetic as I can get on the subject. You know, just to, to double back a little bit, I mean, the idea is, look, New York, because of our density... We're totally dependent on uh, mass transit. We couldn't move people around at our density, which, as I always say, is twice Boston, Chicago, nine times a Sunbelt city like Phoenix or Houston. So mass transit is absolutely essential to our ability to function. We cram all these people into our Manhattan Central Business District, not just five days a week, every day of the week. 
Um, and that's only made possible by mass transit. But more than just the functionality and the economic benefit, it's the fact that we share this public space. And you know, even though people are very different and they have you know, codes of behavior, which sometimes you know, create tension, we figure out how to get along, how to share public space at density. And the subway where you're enclosed or the bus where you're in a closed public space is the greatest test of that sense of tolerance. And obviously because of economics and New York demographics, public transit is always super diverse. So that's why I've said, you know, in, in the more trying moments, I feel like this is a sacred space. We have to protect it because it, it goes to how New Yorkers and even some people who are visiting feel about what does this community mean? They see how we interact with each other. They see how we get along or not. And um, I think that that shapes our view of ourselves and other few of us as well. So from that point of view, the, the big trend, obviously, that a lot of downtowns are kind of either welcoming or fearing is work from home. And I'm just curious how that has been affecting the New York City subway system, because as you say, it's a very dense system. I can imagine there's, you know, lots of people who uh, are commuting from relatively short distances, not necessarily to work. But on the other hand, there's going to be a lot less people coming into all those office buildings. Doesn't that sort of set your demand curve at a lower, kind of structurally at a lower level going forward? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Listen, what I've said is we have lost ridership to the reality of hybrid work to work from home. There's no question. Um, what I always say is, I don't think we in New York ought to be scared of work from home. If you're a young person tapping away in your small apartment or an apartment a couple of days a week, you want New York more than ever. You want you know, the restaurants and the nightlife and the parks and the density and the social opportunities, whether they're Tinder assisted or not. Um, you want all of those right outside your door. And that's what is continuing to draw the smartest, most ambitious young people to New York. That's what is going to protect our economy in the era of hybrid work. So I always say we don't have a hybrid work problem in mass transit. The city's going to be OK. We just need to figure out how to fund mass transit in a slightly lower, uh, as you say, demand curve, maybe for a short time. And we've done that with this uh, budget development. But I would add one other thing, which is that the reality of hybrid work has brought home in the issues of equity that our transit system uh, deals with. So what I was I said to legislators as we were you know, starting to deal with this budget uh, challenge in the last six months or a year is, hey, you, the speaker of the New York State Assembly is in the northern Bronx, the northernmost outreaches of the city. I said, Speaker, I don't want to be cutting service on the number two line in the North Bronx because there are a bunch of more affluent people in Manhattan on the west side who are getting to stay home and make money in swivel chairs. Yes. That are provided from the office. And that was part of the political coalition that we put together, which is to say, people who represent middle class and working class New York, understanding that we couldn't create a system where service was going to be cut just because a relatively smaller group of affluent New Yorkers were riding a little bit of less or 
even dialing it in from the Hamptons or Aspen or wherever. So, you know, the, the people who are on mass transit now in New York are more disproportionately uh, essential workers and working class and middle class people than they were before COVID. But it's still a very, very diverse system up and down the income scale. Well, that brings me to something you alluded to in passing before, which is congestion pricing. People may not know what that's about. Basically, it is a plan about to be put into place or in the process of being put into place now to charge commuters uh, into lower Manhattan from out of the state a fee to bring their cars into the city. And this is going to create a really interesting, substantial funding stream for the MTA. Now, I understand there's a, a lot of objection and maybe even a lawsuit from New Jersey, but without going too far into the weeds, talk to me a little bit about this innovation and maybe how it fits into this point about equity that you were just making. So, you know, everybody's talking about this issue because it, it is certainly not without controversy. We're the first in the nation to do it. But the vast majority of New Yorkers move around by taking mass transit. Like, more than 80% of New Yorkers, it's, it's actually closer to 90% of New Yorkers take the subway or the bus or commuter rail or some walk to work or take a city bus. So it's a very small proportion of people who drive and they're wildly uh, disproportionately more affluent because they're paying for parking in the central business district, which is real money. It's like you know, 50 plus dollars a day in most cases. Believe me, I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked to find that out the last time I was in New York. Yeah, no, it, it has its own discouragement. So the, the thing we got to know is that uh, our priority as a society as, in New York has got to be on making the mass transit system better. So that's number one. Number two is, um, and, and that's what the money is going to be used for, for congestion pricing. But broadly speaking, the action is really also driven by the fact that congestion is really having harmful effects on the city. We are the number one city in the United States in terms of congestion. The number of cars entering the central business district is more than it was before COVID. And then the result is that ambulances can't get to hospitals, fire trucks can't get to fires and progress, and the delivery vehicles, Amazon or otherwise, that are essential to our economy are wasting a ton of time trying to do their work. So what we're, what we're the idea, and the, this was actually passed by the New York State Legislature in 2019 before COVID, it's just getting enacted now, a long story with dealing with the federal government. But, but the purpose is not to attack anyone or let alone people from other states. It's really to make sure that the central business district can function and do what it needs to do. And that the people who do have to come, like delivery drivers and cops and ambulances and fire trucks, can get where they need to go to deal with the air quality issues in the era of climate change. And also third, to fund the mass transit system. Now, you know, the, the opposition to congestion pricing, you know, is feasting on the idea that people of low income or who don't have other options who uh, are going to be impacted by this. But we actually studied that. We had to do a 4,000-page environmental study in order to comply with the federal law and to get the Biden administration's approval, and we did get it. But what it showed is 
in a region of 28 million people, we have only 16,000 people who earn under $50,000 a year who drive to the central business district as their way of commuting. It's such a small portion. And then you recognize that even New Jersey, where the folks who are who politically have been making the most noise about this, uh, are even a tiny subset of that. And, and part of the reality of, uh, of this is, you know, it's I understand the politics in New Jersey or some other places may favor attacking New York City or attacking the MTA, but six times as many people from New Jersey end up on the MTA buses and subways as who actually drive. The New Jerseyites and the suburbanites who come to New York, uh, even if you know that they will benefit from getting on the MTA system that's going to be improved. Uh, they're not in, in the case of the New Jersey folks who are, you know, their their legislators are complaining a deal. Their governor is is, is filing lawsuits. Um, they they benefit from the MTA system without subsidizing it. Remember, the New Yorkers are the ones who are paying the taxes that make it possible for the uh, MTA's operating budget to achieve balance, not New Jerseyites. And they're also going to benefit the people who do have to drive from New Jersey or elsewhere will benefit from the fact that they're not spending as much time wasting in traffic. So, you know, we're pretty comfortable that in light of the fact that we did this huge environmental study, that the litigation is going to turn out fine. Um, but in the meantime, I think that, you know, somewhat lost in the public discussion has been the motivation here, which is we got to make the central business district run and make it safer because avoiding traffic accidents and, um, and to invest in the mass transit system. Less traffic, cleaner air, safer streets, better transit. That's my kind of mantra. I can tell you're very passionate about this innovation. And you, somebody said, Jana, you're preaching to the choir because uh, as a journalist, I've long supported in my columns and editorials the idea that, you know, if the public is engaging in some behavior that's kind of counterproductive, it helps to put a price on it. And uh, and discourage what's really unnecessary and deleterious and the rest they'll be willing to pay for. Um, uh, speaking of paying for things, I wanted to shift gears a little bit to one of the chronic concerns, not just with your system, but with others, which is collecting fares. Um, and you've been pretty adamant that you're not in favor of the idea, uh, that some on the progressive left have favored, which is to make mass transit completely free. Um, if you could give me sort of in a nutshell, the argument against doing that, because I also want to shift gears and talk about what you're doing uh, to try to collect more fares. Yeah, I mean, listen, my concern, I have two folks. Broadly speaking, our collective experience in this country with making things free is that they start to be devalued by the budget makers and the political class. They start to receive less investment uh, for upkeep and improvement because they require so much subsidy just to make them available. And so the whole economics of supporting a free service quickly starts to erode. The second is, you know, managing conduct in a free environment where you're trying to make sure that people don't use it. Uh, you know, we have all kinds of programs to help people who are electing to shelter in the public transit system. 
but I'm sure, you know, some people joke that I, I operate the world's largest uncertified mental health facility in the United States. But the truth is that we need to preserve the public space for the core purpose of transportation rather than housing or as a you know, place for people to, uh, to hang out during the day. And, and there is concern about the behavioral impacts of a free public system. That said, we are also doing a lot to make sure that we have affordability. The New York transit system is so much more affordable than other major cities. You look at London in particular, but other European cities. Um, and we do a lot to target affordability to people who need a break. And, and so we have been advocates for an existing program that gives half fair discounts to people under the poverty line and even making that more broadly available. We have our fair system gives advantages to the most frequent users who are disproportionately working class or middle class and so on. So we, we do believe in affordability. We just don't believe in subsidizing everybody, even those who can pay so that you create a free system because we are concerned about those consequences. Now, as I understand it, there's a lot of discussion and thought being given up in New York and a lot of other cities too. Things as mundane but important as kind of reconfiguring the gates that people are jumping over or that sort of thing. I have read as well at, that New York is actually thinking about how to use AI as a tool to deter fare evasion. Can you tell me anything more about that? Sure. Well, let's start with what we're just doing broadly on fare evasion. Fare evasion has gone from being pre-COVID a 200-something million dollar problem to now it's pushing $700 million lost a year. Wow. On a budget of $18 billion, 80% of which goes to pay our people and to give them their benefits. But that's a huge, huge number. And it also, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, is, you know, it kind of goes to the, the, the sense of community and cohesiveness, because when people see, you know, everybody around the breaking rules in the public space, it feels less safe. It feels also like, why should I pay? I'm, why should I be the sucker who pays? So the problem of, is becoming more pronounced. And there definitely was an acceleration during COVID when you know, a lot of the rules of public behavior seemed to erode. I know, uh, I know in D.C., they practically suspended collecting the fares on the buses during the pandemic. Yeah. 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 Well, what we're trying to do is to, in a responsible, even-handed way, is reestablish the principle that everybody pays. So we put together a panel of serious civic types, very diverse panel, had a lot of people from social justice backgrounds. It was co-chaired by uh, a guy who was the first Latino chair of the New York City Bar Association and a woman who runs a poverty center at NYU. And they gave us a range of suggestions. Now, there's obviously a role to be played by enforcement, but we also want to have more equity. That was you know, the discounts I was talking about before, make sure that, that fair evasion is never a crime of poverty. We also, as you were alluding to, want to harden the entrances so it doesn't become as easy to fair evade as it is now. I won't bore you with the details, but we have an exit gate configuration that's really easy for people just to walk in when others come out uh, the door exiting the system. 
I wouldn't want you to give the details, Jano, because we don't want people to listen to this podcast and figure out how to, how to evade the fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not exactly a secret, but, but the point is that you are making, which is the, the physical fair array ought to be re, rethought. That's the turnstiles and the exiting system so that it's a little less easy. We just had our engineering team at New York City Transit, which runs the subways, come up with a plan that would keep people from what we call backcocking the turnstile arm so they can slip by. So we're doing a lot of things on that. And the other is education. We have we had the, the, the chancellor of the New York City school system, the public school system on that commission. And we used uh, a lot of New York City public school kids as a focus group or multiple focus groups to talk about why young people were getting in the habit of fervating, some even when they have a free Metro card in their pockets provided by the school system. So we're looking at it not as just crackdowns, but we're looking to, you know, really change things across the board. Uh, and AI, it's, it has all kinds of capacities and we use it all through the system in different ways. But right now we're using it not to uh, enforce unfair evasion, but really just to estimate and to clarify the frequency of fare evasion at different stations and different entrances and by different means so that we can be, come up with a plan to be more, uh, more thoughtful about how we're doing it. We, we don't want people to misunderstand you know, that we're not doing facial recognition and sending people tickets, but it really, it, it's more for evaluation and analysis and coming up with policies uh, at this point. So uh, we started off talking about why you would want this job. What, what I didn't mention was some of the jobs you've had before, which uh, include supervising the construction of an enormous uh, tunneling project under Grand Central Station, which is now the Grand Central Annex. You worked for more than a decade helping to uh, transform the World Trade Center site in, in lower Manhattan. You know, you have been in the trenches on infrastructure for most of, or for much of your career, Jano. I'm, I'm curious if you could tell us what you've learned from that time about the big question that so many people are talking about, which is why it takes so long to get projects done in the United States. And what if, if there's like one or two things that you have learned that maybe people aren't widely aware of that could perhaps contribute to making that situation a little better? Well, I mean, I think that this has been a topic of some, you know, that's gotten some attention at the national level. We have uh, decided to regulate infrastructure development of all kinds to such an enormous degree, um, thinking defensively, that we've made it really hard to get big transformational projects going. And that is, it started out with good intentions to try to prevent bad projects from happening without full study, but it's gotten to a degree where it's really hard to do anything, uh, even projects that are really beneficial. That's the first level is the, the regulatory process, uh, especially at the federal level, um, to get projects going is pretty hard to, to uh, work your way through. Um, and, and I think that, you know, Democrats and, and people of you know, liberal thinking, and I include myself in those categories, have, you know, historically supported a more uh, 
burdensome regulation process because they wanted to stop the bad projects, I think we have to think again about if there's so much to be done with green infrastructure and so much to be done to grow resiliency and so much to be done to, to fight climate change, we have to start making it easier to do projects in general. Um, the, the other aspect of, of, of things that, that I've found with the big projects that I've done is that we always need to rethink means and methods. And you know, for us in New York, I like to team up with my labor unions to find new approaches, new technologies, and new ways of doing business. And that has had some success, but we also, we also just need to be able to rethink how we involve communities more quickly so that they don't end up feeling like projects are a burden and they then fight back by slowing projects down, which is the only tool that they have. Um, so engaging the community early and successfully is, I think, a way of expediting projects and making them more successful uh, generally. We try to do that very imperfectly at the MTA, but that is part of our, um, part of our strategy. We, we just finished a couple of multi-billion dollar projects on the Long Island Railroad that actually asked the community to grade the contractors on whether they were good neighbors and made good on their community and environmental commitments. And the contractors got bonuses in part based on those grades, really led to much more successful outcomes. So early and positive engagement with the community is, I think, as important as, you know, the other things that we're trying to overcome in terms from a regulatory standpoint. I have to say, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about what you just told me about the environmental impact statement you had to do on congestion pricing, which in a way isn't even a construction project. And that was how many thousand pages? So yeah, we, we've, got a, we've got an issue. Well, obviously part of the challenge is we, we do all this environmental review. We do 4,000 pages of it and the feds, you know, God knows they worked us over. We had like 25 different outreach and public hearing events we had to respond to and evaluate and then respond to. 80,000 separate comments and submissions, and still we get lawsuits you know, up the wazoo. So definitely the legal system is another variable in you know, the question you're raising about how quickly we can get stuff done. Well, there are, as we've been discussing, there are a lot of frustrations in what you do, Jano. But the last time we got together, you told me a wonderful story about how uh, a little situation worked out unexpectedly well for you when you encountered uh, a case of fare evasion in progress. I, I would love if you would share that story with, with our listeners now. There was somebody who was struggling with severe mental health issues who was yelling, let me in, let me in, standing at the exit gate. And the cops, and the cops said, hey, I'll let you in, no problem, hang on, madam. And I said, what are you doing? You can't let people in for free. And the cop said to me, mind your business. And I said to, to her, actually, actually, this is my business. <laughs> um, the, the irony is that it didn't, it, it didn't change her attitude very much when I handed her my business card. But, you know, we work really closely with the NYPD. Um, this, she was a, a member of the NYPD uh, that was there, although she was an overtime cop who didn't normally work the transit system. And an hour later, 
I got a video from the chief of the transit police uh, of her being uh, re-instructed on what we do with people not to let them fare in the system, which was you know, part of our partnership with the NYPD, but made me feel 2% better. Well, for all the hassles you have to deal with in your job, Jano, that must have been a moment of, of great redemption, made it all worthwhile. So we don't take call-in questions on this show, but my young son, David, who's 26, when he heard I was going to interview, he got very excited. He is a, he is a big fan of subway systems, maybe because uh, we've traveled a lot in Germany where his mother is from, and he's memorized the map of the Berlin subway. And he's also a big fan of the Tokyo subway. So he asked me to ask you a question. Are you willing to take my son's question? Uh, let her rip. Let her rip. He said, what does he think of the Tokyo subway system, which is in most people's minds, probably the most elite one in the world, and how New York compares, whether they've learned any lessons from the Japanese? That's a pretty interesting question. Listen, the Tokyo system is about as good as it gets. Uh, they, they deal with enormous volume and the performance in terms of timeliness and the caliber of service is extraordinary. Um, and we've all seen the, the images of the white glove attendants pushing people on so they all squeeze on it. It's kind of an icon of, of Japan. What I would say is like our system is incredibly big it's 472 stations. I think it's a little bigger than Tokyo. You know, our system reflects who we are as much as Tokyo reflects its system. Words and all, I think New York has the mass transit system that reflects us, our strengths, our weaknesses, and our community. And it, it continues to perform exceptionally well. It is a treasure that you know our four mothers and forefathers handed down and we really have to make good on in order for the city to uh to function and it's 24 7 like new york which i'm pretty sure tokyo isn't and and most other systems aren't it really does reflect new york and we're going to keep it hopefully getting more modern and advancing in standards uh maybe not up to tokyo's level but shooting to get there but uh we we love the system and we're very proud of it I don't know if people in New York would put up with somebody pushing them onto the subway, even if they were wearing white gloves. So that's another difference. But Jano, uh, I really appreciate your spending time with us on the podcast. Your thoughts on transportation, urban life, and a lot of other subjects are always fascinating to listen to. I wish we had more time, but we don't. But again, thanks for being on times like these. Thank you. Really fun. Really fun.